0: John Moorhead, and this is uh, the podcast for Multifaith Matters. Thank you for stopping by and either listening or watching, depending upon the way in which you like uh, partaking of this podcast. I hope you find this podcast helpful. Of course, if you uh, found us through either YouTube or or Podbean, you know this is not the only episode of the podcast available. I would encourage you to uh, take a look and see the others. We are a nonprofit organization, uh, which means uh, we could use your uh, support in making podcasts like these possible. We have a new uh, patrons page on the Podbean. We'll include a link in the episode description. And if uh, you have just a few dollars a month, everything is appreciated to help keep this podcast going. And of course, if you go to our website at multifaithmatters.org, you'll find a a number of other uh, resources that we make available. And the goal here is to help evangelicals and other Christians uh, not only love God and, and, uh, and love their neighbor, but specifically their multi-faith neighbor. And uh, many times we evangelicals don't do a very good job of that. So hopefully we can provide some resources to make that possible. Well, today I have uh, two special guests in uh, different time zones, and somehow we made it all work uh, to come together. I'm going to read uh, their bios here in uh, the book we're going to be discussing. First, uh, Amy Jill Levine is University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies, and Mary Jane Worthen Professor of Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt Divinity School and Department of Jewish Studies. She is the author of many books, including The Misunderstood Jew and Short Stories by Jesus. I'm going to call you AJ for your preference. Welcome to the program, AJ. Delighted to be with you. And we also have Mark. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing the middle part correctly, Mark. Mark Zvi. Yes. Mark Zvi Brettler, and he is the Bernice and Morton Lerner Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies in the Department of Religious Studies at Duke University. He is the author of many books, including The Creation of History in Ancient Israel and How to Read the Jewish Bible. Mark, welcome to the program as well. Pleasure to speak to you from Jerusalem. Ah. Uh, We're going to be talking about the new book that you two uh, co-authored, The Bible With and Without Jesus, How Jews and Christians Read the Same Stories Differently. It's a fascinating read. Um, First, I I want to say how you folks came on my radar. A few years ago, I was reading a book, uh, a dialogue conversation, uh, how to read the Bible uh, religiously and uh, and academically or something like that, and it was a conversation between uh, Peter Enns representing the Protestant uh, position, There was a Roman Catholic contributor. And then, Mark, you had the Jewish perspective in that. And I just found that fascinating, uh, that conversation fascinating to see how three different traditions approach their own scripture, not only as religious believers, but also trying to take the the scholarship seriously. And so, Mark, that put you on my radar. And then, AJ, uh, I followed uh, your work. I have a a copy of uh, the annotated uh, New Testament. Uh, that you have and some of your other works and I've just I have benefited I I subscribe to the Torah.com and find uh, the perspective of scholarly uh, Jews trying to approach their own scripture from the perspective of being a believer and looking at the scholarship I find that very helpful not only to understand where you folks are coming from in your religious tradition but to help me understand my own scriptures as, as I share them with you in the Hebrew Bible so I really appreciate what you're doing and and look forward to the the conversation today. Um, It's going to be informative. I I do want to have a little uh, statement for evangelicals, conservative evangelicals who may be uh, watching this, that the intent is not to tear down the evangelical understanding of Scripture, but rather through a multi-faith conversation to understand how the Jewish community understands its own sacred text how the Christian community, by way of reflection on that, understands its own sacred text. And I just think we all come away as as winners in that conversation. So uh, it can be a threatening process, but it doesn't have to be. I think it can be a very informative and helpful process. So thank you for coming by and helping make this conversation uh, possible. Um, Let's begin with some foundational kinds of questions before we look at specific biblical texts. What led you to to write this book?
1: Well, I'll, I'll start. Um, yeah. You had mentioned before the Jewish Annotated New Testament, and Mark yes. and I co-edited that. Um, and Mark, you're, Mark's also the founder, one of the founders of, of Torah.org. Dot, dot oh, OK. I did um, not know that. Wow. Th- I'm
2: privileged. Yeah, no. <laughs> that's to- Torah.com.
1: that's Torah.com. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I, I can do Bible. I just can't do Internet sigla. Um <laughs> Uh Mark and I did the Jewish Annotated New Testament, which uh, came out in its second edition, uh, Oxford University Press in 2017, um, where we had Jews looking at all the books in the New Testament, as well as um, about 50 back essays, like who were the Pharisees and how did the temple function and what was family life like. And we got done, we realized there was so much more to say, and we were getting letters from both Jews and Christians saying, well, I didn't know Christians read Isaiah that way, and uh, Christians saying, I didn't know Jews read Jonah that way. So we thought how marvelous it would be to produce a book that had three parts to it. We would take the major, I'm gonna use Christian terminology here, given your base audience. Um, we would use the major Old Testament citations that, that get surfaced in the New Testament to ask first, um, how did they function in their original context? Because if Isaiah says, you know, 700 years from now, there'll be an important child who was born, people aren't going to care. They want to know something that's going on in their own time period. So how did it function historically? How are those texts reinterpreted in the New Testament? And how did post-biblical Judaism reinterpret those same texts to suggest that the words of the Bible are sufficiently um, generous and sufficiently meaningful that They have to mean more than just a zero-sum game, just what the New Testament says, or just what the Jewish tradition says. And then at the end of each chapter, we, we tried to push ahead to say, instead of reading, here's the Christian reading, and here's a multiple Jewish readings, because heaven forbid Jews would settle on one reading. Um, what combined might we come up with? What, what more can we see here? So we're not taking away anything from the church. Jesus fulfills everything the church says it does. But those texts also have ongoing meaning. What might they mean? And how might Jews and Christians today have have readings that can be shared rather than readings that are polemical and over against each other?
2: And my background in this is a little different than AJ's. AJ is coming to this predominantly as a New Testament scholar. I'm coming to this predominantly as a scholar of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And I became sort of an accidental New Testament scholar when we started working on the Jewish Annotated New Testament, which was a follow-up of a different edited volume. I was working on the Jewish Study Bible, which is on the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, which I co-edited with Adele Berlin. And so I was looking for another project. It was natural for me, even as a Jew, to go from the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament to the New Testament. I learned a tremendous amount from that particular project, but also realized there's a tremendous amount more for me to learn for me to learn. So that's what was so exciting about doing the second book together with AJ.
0: Well, it's a great book and it sounds like with uh, the letters you've gotten, has the feedback been largely positive or wholly positive, or have there been any concerns? I can't imagine why someone would have a concern with it, but you never know.
1: I haven't seen anything terribly negative. Um, More like, how come you didn't do this chapter, and how come you didn't do this chapter, and, you know, you could have written another 300 pages, and will you do a sequel? Uh, but w- the comments that we're getting, and if, if, on occasion I look at Amazon to see what's going on, uh, people seem absolutely delighted by recognizing that there are multiple meanings to an individual text, as, as all texts would have. Um, and they also seem quite pleased with the ironic tone here because we're not coming at this as polemics. Um, and I've gotten personal, I don't know if Mark has, a number of comments from Christians saying, thank you for treating our tradition with such respect.
2: And that's Which what we're trying amazing. to do here. Yeah, and I hope we succeeded at it. And it's interesting, I never thought about this until you asked the question. When the Jewish Annotated New Testaments came out, first time 10 years ago, there were quite a few negative comments on Amazon, Mm -hmm. many of which started with, I haven't read this book, and I will never read this book. But it is a terrible idea. So I think things have progressed in the 10 years, in terms of acceptance of some more acceptance of Jewish interpretation of the New Testament and sharing these multiple perspectives.
0: Now That's interesting, Mark. Why, why do you, I know it's speculation on part, your part, but why would you think that is? I mean, with the emphasis even in evangelicalism on the importance of historical Jesus studies and understanding the Jewish background of Christianity in the New Testament and all this, I would assume, I, when I saw uh, that uh, Jewish-annotated New Testament, I thought, that that's awesome. That gives me an additional set of tools to understand my own text. I just don't understand why. Do you have any, any thoughts on that, why that might be?
2: I think there's some difference in tone. I think the Jewish annotated New Testament is very scholarly hmm. and sometimes comes across as this is what you need to believe, though that is not never our intent, was never our intention as editors. But this particularly this particular book was really open written in a very, very open and encouraging ways. And I think it's been heard that way. And that's very gratifying. I think the problem
1: with the Jewish Annotated, and again, the people who wrote negative reviews were people who never read the book. Was right. the very idea of putting Jewish and New Testament together just seemed really surprising to them, um, and it, that seems surprising to me because it seems pretty obvious that you know Jesus was Jewish and John the Baptist was Jewish and all the Marys were Jewish and Paul is Jewish and Peter is Jewish. You'd think, but somehow in the minds of some people. Um, as soon as Jesus walks on the stage and you grandfather, John the Baptist, and they're all Christian, as if they cease to be Jews, failing to recognize that the New Testament is, in fact, substantially Jewish history. Uh, much of it is written by Jews and all of it is written about Jews. Yeah. Um, and on the other side, there were some Jewish readers who said, oh, no, you cannot possibly look at the New Testament as Jewish history. That's the stuff that got rejected and it's terrible. Um, And then other Jews thought that we were Messianic Jews and we were trying to proselytize. So the very title, the Jewish Annotated New Testament, created the controversy. And we're hoping with the title the Bible with and without Jesus, rather than or, recognizes the the validity of multiple meanings.
0: Right. Maybe if uh, you are able to release a second edition, maybe a forward by Mel Brooks or something would help reduce some of the tension. I don't know. Just a thought. (laughs) Okay. What, what are some of the common assumptions and misunderstandings that Christians and Jews have about each other as they interpret their sacred texts?
1: Well, here's here's one that I've heard from from my own synagogue context um, uh, when people because people know what I do. So they have lots of questions, mm-hmm. um, things like how can Christians possibly find Jesus in, in the pages of Scripture because he wasn't born yet? as if to say those retrospective readings are illegitimate. Um, And then I can point out to them, gee, when we look at rabbinic traditions, so we look at post-biblical Jewish traditions, um, we're finding all sorts of things that, that are in the text that the authors of the text might not have considered. The Dead Sea Scrolls suggest, well, here you have Habakkuk the prophet or here you have Nahum the prophet, but what they're really talking about is something that we understand today. So the failure on the part of of one community to recognize the other community is reading retrospectively, we're all reading retrospectively. Um, And that's the way literature works because we're always asking new questions of it and we're always coming to it with our own new experiences. So for the text to remain alive, of course it has to mean multiple things.
2: And I think for Christians, one of the big surprises is the possibility of the without Jesus, which is something that we talk about in each of the chapters. And I'll just tell an anecdote that goes back to the Jewish Study Bible, uh, which was published when people were still writing letters. And the most surprising (laughs) letter that I got was from a Christian who said, yeah, I've been reading Isaiah chapter 53 for years, and it simply never occurred to me that it is possible to read this without Jesus. So I think it's incredibly important to let each community know the way in which the other community reads and to see the reasonableness in all of these readings.
1: Um, More than that. So I I think it's particularly good news for Christians, because in most cases, Christians can double dip. So to use the Christian term, the Old Testament should not simply be a checklist to say Jesus fulfills this. So therefore, you can take it out of the text and put it up on the shelf and say, been there, done that. Um, it is scripture, and that scripture should have some sort of ongoing meaning. So for the Christian, it becomes a both and. It can refer to Jesus, but it could also mean a host of other things. Let the text continue to speak. So I tell my, I, I, my primary job is, is to train people who want to be Christian ministers how to read the New Testament, which I grant is a weird job for a Jew in Nashville, Tennessee. But um, what I can say to them is if you're preaching and you're looking at the Old Testament and you're running dry, go see what the Jewish tradition has to say, and you may find something that actually speaks to you today. Go double dip.
0: Yeah, I, I find the question of the assumptions we bring to the text tremendously important. Uh, it's interesting in my work in multi-faith engagement, uh, if I ask evangelicals, oh, well, why are you so opposed to Muslims or, or Mormons or what have you? Well, the Bible says, and they'll go to a certain series of texts. But then if I have a congregation that... Uh, is much more uh, neighborly, uh, given to hospitality. So why do you choose to engage them in that way? They'll say, well, the Bible says, and they'll go to a different set of texts. And so there's this post hoc process where our assumptions are brought to the text and then we find the text that that is in keeping with our assumptions. So I think the idea of uh, trying to be more aware of the assumptions we bring to the text are tremendously helpful. I'm not telling you folks anything you don't know, but...
2: (laughs) And to realize that there are many different valid assumptions. And I think what this book tries to do, one of the images that we use is of eyeglasses or lenses. And we view this book as a multifocal book where we really want people to be able to read the very same book with different types of lenses and to see that all of these different readings are in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament based on the assumptions, and to encourage people to be more generous about understanding and considering the assumptions that other religious groups make. Well,
0: there are not only the assumptions we bring to it, we've got a different process of interpretation. Um, you know we have different processes of commentary. Uh, you know, Protestants have this idea of sola scriptura, which to me is interesting because scriptura is never sola. And, uh, you know, Protestants like the so-called plain reading of the text, uh, which re- usually isn't very plain. Uh, what are the different uh, interpretive processes that our religious communities bring
2: to the text? Well, I'll talk about the Jewish side for a moment. So it is not only the case, going back to what A.J. said, uh, quite obvious case that Jews do not read the, any of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament in relation to Jesus. But a fundamental principle, I'll give you two fundamental principles of Judaism and its interpretive tradition. One of them, uh, first give you the Hebrew, then the English, shiv'im panim la Torah. There are 70 facets to the Torah or 70 facets of biblical interpretation. And that does not continue by saying, and only one of those facets is right. So imagine, a beautiful gemstone. And you keep looking at it in different ways, and different ways, and different ways. And each of those ways has a certain validity to it. And similarly, in traditional um, rabbinic thought, in midrashic literature, you will often have a series of of interpretations, each of them separated from one another by the Hebrew expression, davar acher, another opinion. Now, again, the way in which this material is edited, it doesn't say the first opinion is always right or the last opinion is always right, but you'll often have a set of different opinions, a set of different interpretive possibilities. And I think what we're really trying to encourage people of all religious groups and all religious orientations is to just consider that model, to see that the book really is a gemstone which has so many different facets and not to be so quick to say, oh, I'm reading this facet, and it is the only facet that could be read and the other 69 are incorrect, right?
1: And that works for both narrative, like the creation story, the garden of Eden story, the book of Jonah. It works for prophecy uh, like Isaiah 53 or Isaiah seven. It works for Psalms and it even works for the law code um, so that when you get to post-biblical Jewish literature on discussing the law code, um, you have a min- minority opinions are there. Um, you have discussions over time, so sometimes the majority opinion becomes the minority. They change. Um, now, there's a re- there's one of the reasons why Jews have this multiplicity of readings, and Christians tend to have much more narrow readings, um, is because we are comported differently. Um, if we think about um, Jews, we are not just a faith community. In fact, you can be a Jewish atheist. Um, what holds us together is a sense of peoplehood, uh, a common language, a common document, a uh, connection to a, a common land, um, a common ancestry. So we're, we're kind of like Americans, right? And just as Americans can disagree about, well, pretty much everything, so can Jews, because at the end of the day, you're all still Jews. But People are not born Christian, right? Technically in the ancient world, you were born again or born anew. I'm quoting here from the gospel of John chapter three, Jesus to Nicodemus, Um, you're born by revelation. Um, So Christianity really is a faith community. Now, if you get in by belief, you also get out by belief. So Christians tended to foreclose on multiple meanings because they're trying to control who's in and who's out. And you have to do that by, by religious concern. What do you believe? So it, if you're a people, you can glory in multiple interpretations because they can't throw you out. But if you're a faith community, multiple interpretations can become very dangerous. And then we start seeing the growth of denominationalism. And, and you can even see that in the New Testament itself in First Corinthians, where Paul is talking about the fractures in the church and people are saying, I belong to Cephas or Peter. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Paul. I belong to Christ. And Paul's trying to get them all into that community because they're being splintered by belief. Control the belief, and you have less splintering, less factionalism.
0: I think that's a fascinating process, which leads to my next question. And that is one of the things that struck me, Mark, in that book where you had the conversation with uh, a Protestant and a Catholic was uh, the willingness in the Jewish community to wrestle with the sacred text and even perhaps to wrestle with God. Uh, For evangelicals is, I'm sure you know, there's the idea of inerrancy, and the text, you know, has a simple meaning. We can, through a historical critical method, we can discover it, and you either accept it or you don't, and uh, it's kind of a rule book approach, and I really found that your mention of the Jewish willingness to wrestle very refreshing. Um, Can you unpack that a little, both of you, for us, and do you think the uh, the early Christian community had a willingness to wrestle in some sense and, and what we're doing now in Protestantism, is that more of a, a modern thing? Help me understand that if you would.
2: Uh, I'll let AJ talk about uh, the Protestant community and the Christian community more broadly. And yeah, I appreciate your calling attention to the book with Peter Ains and the late Daniel Harrington. But part of Judaism is taking the Hebrew Bible seriously. And the Israel is called Israel because of of its ancestor Jacob. And Genesis chapter 32, 29, trying to explain the name Israel, and this is what is called the folk or a popular etymology, says, uh, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, Hebrew Israel, for you have striven Kisarita, so you hear how Israel, Israel, and to strive. Sarita are connected with beings divine and human and have prevailed. So this notion of religious fighting, religious striving, is embedded in the name of Israel itself, according to the text that constitutes Israel, namely the book of Genesis. And what's so remarkable about this is uh, in order for this etymology to work, it could just say, because you have striven. But that verse continues, you have striven both with divine beings or with God and with people, right? So striving on both the divine level and the human level is thought to be something positive. And the last word in Hebrew or the last three words in English are remarkable and have prevailed. I mean, you would think that striving with God is going to end up with very, very bad results. But this text, which again, stands at the basis of the etymology of Israel here, suggests very otherwise. So this basic text, I think, continues to inform Judaism, which is an ongoing process of such striving with the possibility of prevailing yeah um two other ways of looking
1: at that and there's such a good question there's so many ways of answering it um we begin jews and christians with a slightly different anthropology um and this goes back to how we interpret the garden of eden story so the dominant christian view is one of a fall right um sin enters the world through adam and eve and here i'm quoting romans 5 you know through one man comes sin and death um and there's a sense of a breach between humanity and divinity that jesus has to come fix and then once that fixes and we have to do everything that god wants because we're now we've now got the reset um uh jews tend to begin with a much more positive anthropology um and it's just a matter of what text you want to quote we don't talk about a fall And after the first couple of chapters of Genesis, although the Garden of Eden gets mentioned, Adam and Eve don't. So we can talk. Judaism tends to talk about a good inclination and an evil inclination and the evil inclinations that that's actually selfishness. So the evil inclination is why you get married or why you build a house. And the Torah is there to make sure that evil inclination is channeled in appropriate ways. Um, because we begin with a much more positive anthropology, we, don't, we, we feel that we can speak to God um, as, as, as kind of as Moses did. And here we have things like the lament psalms. Now, did Jesus do that? Absolutely. Which is why on the cross, Jesus can say in Matthew and Mark, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the beginning of Psalm 22. It's a lament psalm. And there are a number of lament psalms where you can say to God, in effect, I'm not happy with the way things are going. And this doesn't seem to be what you promised us. But if you fix it, I will praise your name to the highest heaven. So in effect, Jews can complain to God. Um, Christians tend not to do that. It says, you know, your will be done. Um, But the the back part before the your will be done is um, things like, take this cup away from me. I'm not happy. I don't want to die or even in the Our Father prayer, um, that, that's basically a series of imperatives. Give us this day, um, forgive us, Th- these are demands. Um, and what happens is the demands get weakened down into begging, um, and the human being is seen as, as not worthwhile, a worm, a, a broken creature, a broken individual. And if you, if you begin with that, it's harder to do that wrestling Jeez, we just start out. We're going to wrestle, and if we don't think God's holding up God's part part of the the covenant, we're going to say so. Just as in the the scriptures, when when Israel is not holding up its part of the covenant, God makes it pretty clear.
0: Right. Yeah, I I appreciate all of that. I, I when you were speaking, AJ, I it reminded me uh, a few months ago. I stumbled upon a film on YouTube. Uh, I think it was based upon a play where uh, Jews in a uh, uh, prison camp during World War II were putting God on trial. I think it was based upon true events. And I thought, wow, uh, uh, as a Christian, I think they would see that as that's how audacious is that you're going to put God on trial. But when you think about it here, God's chosen people wrestling with how did we get in this in this place? What responsibility does God have? That, that's wrestling uh, with God.
1: If I'm remembering correctly, and I think it is actually called God on trial. Yeah. Um, at the end of the play, because it's a jury trial, they pronounce God guilty. Yes. And then they say the evening prayers. Yeah. <laughs> so the, Which is a, the covenant prevails. Yeah. That's such
2: a Jewish thing to do. God is guilty. Now we're going to pray to you. But I think one thing that could easily get lost to your audience which does not always come across as clearly in the English as it does in the Hebrew. And every time I see it in the Hebrew of the Psalms, which everybody thinks are such idyllic and calm uh, compositions, these works are full of imperatives. They're full of demands from God. And Jewish tradition very much continues in the same vein. Which means you you can talk to God. It's, it's healthy
1: um, and you don't, it, 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 and if God is, if we look at God as a, like a healthy parental system, you can say to your parent, I don't like the way things are going, or I'm not happy, or can you step in and do something without worrying that the parent's going to say, oh, I don't care. The loving parents always respond in a particular way and, and you can approach the, the deity as a loving parent. That's what Jesus does.
2: And some of these psalms even suggest that God hears these people in the lament, despite their tone, like Psalm 6, for the Lord here heeds the sound of my weeping. So this is not at all a problem from the biblical perspective. And I think to the extent that we want to take the Bible seriously, we need to reintegrate the potential relationship that these psalms suggest.
0: I think that's fascinating, and I hope uh, my Christians in the audience will will take that to heart as they reassess their understanding of Scripture and that wrestling process. I've got a couple of other questions related to foundational issues, and then we'll turn to your thoughts on how certain texts are read differently. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on how important uh, the sacred text is being read and interpreted in community. Um, One of the frustrations I have working in multi-faith engagement is when evangelicals uh, come or I see them online or talk to them, they say, well, you know, I understand Islam because I grabbed an English copy of the Quran and I plopped it open and I read it and it says this, and therefore, uh, Islam is violent and it supports terrorism and, and A, B, and C. And my response is, what about the, the history of uh, Muslim scholars and how they have read it and how it's read in different traditions within Islam? That there's a, a process of community and a history to reading, and one simply can't bring this Western Protestant individualist mindset to the text. Um, wh- wh- how important is reading our text in community, and how do we get away from this individualist problem that plagues it?
1: It's more than oh. just reading in community. Um, th- there's an historical question here that, 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 that is even prior to the community thing, which is you cannot read somebody's scripture and determine that's what a person believes or that's what a person does. Um, I had this, this one fellow years ago who said to me, do Jews in urban areas need a zoning variance in order to a- offer animal sacrifice? because he had read Leviticus. So he knew that there was animal sacrifice. He read the epistle to the Hebrews in the New Testament that says there's no forgiveness without blood. So he concluded that Jews must be offering animal sacrifices. There's, there's a logic there. But we're not Leviticus any more than Christians today, You know, and, and God bless you all for that, uh, are not First Corinthians. Um, and you can't take this material literally. Um, so when my students say, well, Jews are doing an eye for an eye, which as far as we can tell, we never did. Um, I can say, well, when Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out, then clearly you guys are going to have eye surgery to have your eye removed on a fairly regular basis. And they say, well, no, that's not the case. So even before we have the question of community, we have to realize that when we read historical documents, that doesn't tell you what somebody 2000 years later or 3000 years later is actually practicing. And that's where the community comes in. So I'll let Mark pick up from
2: there. And, and there are two issues of community. I mean, I would really challenge somebody who says, oh, I'm reading the text myself, not in a community. I mean, we're humans. We are so embedded in our communities. In some cases, we really not understand how embedded we are, but we really are never reading texts as individuals, but always reading them in our community. And in some cases, what we're encouraging people to do is really to read them to consider how other communities read them as well. And something that's really important, which AJ said, and you said as well in your question, is you really do have to listen to voices from that community itself. So that uh, certainly I can have this, could have, have the skills in Arabic, which I don't at this point to understand the Quran, but I would also really want to hear how somebody who is living the tradition and is part of that tradition understands us. And I would really wanna be sure, given your particular examples, that I'm not cherry picking. There was something wonderful that a professor posted on Facebook uh, the other day, which was, and I'm gonna say this right, that the, the God of the Hebrew Bible is the God of love. And the God of the New Testament is the vengeful God of law. Now, how did she do this? She cherry-picked the same way that people cherry very often with Marcion and others a very long time ago did that in the opposite direction. So please, let's not cherry-pick from each other's scriptures. And let's hear the entirety of scripture and the different voices and the different ideas that work together with each scriptural tradition.
1: Right. So very few people today are are basically living out the the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, living out the Old Testament. Uh, For the church, the Old Testament is interpreted by the new. Um, And for the synagogue, the the, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, is interpreted through the lenses of the rabbis and through the lenses of tradition. So you can't go to Leviticus and figure out what anybody's doing, even the people who were there at the time, because we don't know if this material was written to describe what people are doing or to describe what the writers thought people should be doing.
0: It's a helpful distinction there. With this next question, this is kind of a combination of a a foundational question and and shifting to a discussion of specific texts and how we differ in the interpretation. Years ago, as a young Christian, uh, I was very zealous and uh, was gobbling up apologetic books. And one argument that I thought was very good, which I no longer hold to anymore, was the idea that, well, if you look at the, the, uh, the so-called Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, you'll find all these prophecies that are in the New Testament applied to Jesus. And then if we do run the math that the odds of it, you know, not referring to Jesus, therefore he must be the Messiah. Um, but as I've looked at that process of what's going on in the New Testament, we're not talking about a process of predictive prophecy there. Can you help unpack what's going on in the New Testament and what the writers are trying to do as as they are reading the Hebrew Bible in light of their experience and understanding of
1: Jesus? Sure. Um, I I have to rephrase the question slightly because the writers of the New Testament are not reading their Hebrew Bible. They're reading the Greek translation for the most part, Um, (laughs) which was the Bible of the Jewish diaspora. Um, But so what happens? Uh, in light of their experience of Jesus, in light of their experience of what they would say would be the risen Christ, they went back to the only scripture that they had, which they believed was God's word in some way. Um, and, and through those, those resurrection lenses, through those, those now Christ-driven lenses, they began to see all the way through connections to their Lord and Savior. So it's a retrospective reading. Um, and that's what, that's what religion does is you go back and you look at your text and in light of your present circumstances, you begin to see your own history there. So that when they started to tell the story of Jesus, they told it through the templates that, that what became the Old Testament provided them. Um, and they did it differently. So uh, a number of them looked at, as you had mentioned before, Isaiah 53, which plays no role in, in, in contemporary Judaism. Um, they looked at Isaiah 53 and they said, oh, Matthew said, oh, that's healing narratives. So Matthew uses that to say he bore our diseases, which means he heals. Um, and First Peter reads it to say, um, here's, here's in part why slaves should be obedient because this fellow suffered and you, you know how to suffer. Um, And the crucifixion narratives read it in light of um, uh, Jesus redeeming from sin, as does the epistle to the Hebrews. So it it was a ready-made text for them. And then it's a matter of retrospective reading and and adaptation. Jews looked at this. Sometimes they they ignored it because it wasn't doing anything for them. And in other cases, they looked at the same text and came up with quite different readings. For example, about uh, the priest Melchizedek in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110.
2: And there's a word that you used in your question that we keep coming back to, that we haven't really defined, but is really worth thinking about. You're calling these books scripture. Now scripture is not simply an objective set of texts, but it is an objective set of texts. I'm sorry, it's a set of texts that has a significant function, including a religious function or functions within a particular community. And as such, It's an honorific title when you call something scripture, and by calling something scripture or by viewing any text as scripture, you're saying that it is ever relevant to you, and this type of retrospective reading becomes natural. It's almost part of what has to happen once you view a particular ancient text as scripture.
1: And what happens in the church is the, the common reading in antiquity, and for many people today, is that the entire Old Testament, from the beginning of Genesis until the end of, of Malachi, drives toward Jesus. Um, so there were people in the ancient world who said that, in effect, every verse is about Jesus, and you should be, you should be able to see Jesus on every single page of the text. And there's a logic to that reading. It's as Mark said: if you put on Christian lenses, he's going to be there on every page. It's not a matter of like, where's Waldo that you can actually oh, it says Jesus of Nazareth here. Uh, but it, it is a sense of once you once you have that presupposition that it's pointing to Jesus, you will see him there. But if you don't have that presupposition, you won't.
0: Yeah, it's important to remember what kind of lenses we're reading with. That's for sure. Um, A few questions about some other specific texts and why we have different readings. Uh, You've touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation, but I'd like to unpack it further. You've got a section of the book called Creation of the World, and uh, you mentioned how there's a very different understanding of the creation narrative uh, where Adam and Eve are are mentioned there, and uh, many Christians read that as a fall. I understand Eastern Orthodoxy does not read it that way, but uh, I'm not quite sure what the specifics are of their interpretation. How would, a, how would the Jewish community understand what's going on in Genesis three and that whole story with Adam and Eve? What kinds of interpretations are there?
1: Well, we start with, there are multiple interpretations. There's, there's no one Jewish interpretation.
2: Right, it's so important that you had a plural there with interpretations. So Jews are gonna be in all sorts of directions about that. But certainly one of the directions uh, in a non-polemical sense is that this is not really about a fall. And this is the interpretation that I favor and what I think the text was originally talking about. If you want to be an originalist is that the people in the Garden of Eden were originally non-sexual and non-procreative. And this is a story which tells, an ex- and I'm sorry, and at the same time they were immortal, and therefore the story that you have in Genesis chapters two and three talks about a trade-off which this first primordial couple engaged in, of, ah, uh, you know, do we want to be immortal or do we want to be sexual? And the ultimate choice that is taken is when you eat of the tree of knowledge, and I remind everybody who's listening of the English expression to know in the biblical sense, they become sexual and life as we know it comes into being. And I would just say that by and large, the Jewish attitude towards sexuality is highly positive. So I think at least that is one very plausible Jewish reading of Genesis chapters two and three.
1: You have some readings that blame Eve. You have some readings that look at Eve as uh, Adam's helper. Um, the early, and like they, they're, they're in partnership. Um, the, one of the earliest Jewish interpretations of the Adam and Eve story is in a text called the Book of Tobit, which is part of the Protestants would call it the Old Testament Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical literature. Um, and when Tobias, who's Tobit's son, gets married, Um, He evokes Adam and Eve uh, as the ideal couple, and maybe we'd be like Adam and Eve. Uh, You wouldn't find that in many Christian sources, because there the the blame is going to be, Adam and Eve are the ones who brought sin into the world, rather than here is the couple who represent uh, initial joy and initial partnership.
2: Yeah, and you have that same thing continued in Jewish liturgy, where part of the Jewish wedding is a recitation of seven blessings, and it deals with Eden as an ideal and joyous place, just in the same way, and really wishes that the couple getting married is going to be like Adam and Eve in Eden. And again, as AJ pointed out, uh, I'm hard-pressed to imagine that becoming part of Christian liturgy.
0: I think it's fascinating that there are different readings there. I've heard Peter Enns uh, mention the interpretive possibility of Israel being reflected in in Adam and Eve. Do you have any thoughts on that? I've, I've never been able to track down what specific uh, interpretation he's referring to. I just throw if, if it's not coming to mind, we'll move on. Okay, well, well I'll see if I can email Peter inns and get more information for uh-huh. people on that. Um, yeah, say
1: hi from us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, each year at uh, Christmas time, uh, you know, we, we uh, Christians celebrate the birth of Christ and they look at the uh, the birth stories and the Gospels And in the Gospel of Matthew, there's the the mention of a virgin conceiving and bearing a child. Um, How is that read differently, uh, quoting from Isaiah, in Jewish interpretations?
2: Well, first of all, the Jews are reading it in Hebrew rather than in Greek. So the Hebrew term, which eventually gets understood, for example, in the King James Version as virgin and is translated more or less similarly, in the Greek Septuagint is the word alma, which does not necessarily mean virgin, but really means a woman of marriageable age. So a fundamental difference between Judaism and Christianity, this is so important and often so misunderstood is some people simply think, oh yeah, the Hebrew Bible is a different name for the Old Testament, but that really isn't the case. Yes, especially if you're Protestant, you do have the same books, albeit in a different order. And order matters a whole lot. But especially in the Christian tradition, many of the verses that are referred to uh, in the New Testament, as A.J. just noted, the authors of the New Testament were not reading the Hebrew Bible, but were reading the Greek Old Testament. And so much just starts from there. So uh, whether you have a young woman who is about to conceive, that matters a whole lot, as opposed to a virgin shall conceive. And in the Hebrew text, the tense is also different. So it seems to be talking about, though you can never pin down tenses 100% in Hebrew. Hebrew is one of those lovely, funny languages, but it seems to be talking about something that is happening in the present rather than something that, as A.J. mentioned, is going to happen 700 years hence. So it's not even the same text we're talking about. So the
1: Hebrew has a pregnant young woman, um, and the sign is not there's going to be a pregnant young woman. Um, The the, the sign has a whole context to it. So what what is the message that King Ahaz is getting from Isaiah the prophet, um, and what does the prophet say about what, what's going to happen when this kid gets a little bit older and starts and starts eating solid food and what's happening with the political situation? So the whole thing is, is a, an, an extended sign. When Alma in Hebrew comes in as into Greek, it comes in not as Nyaanus, young woman. It comes in as Parthenos, um, which can mean virgin but doesn't have to. Right? Uh, back in Genesis chapter 34, the story of, of Jacob's daughter Dina, um, following Dina's uh, sexual relations with a fellow named Shechem, Shechem says to his dad, get me this Parthenos for a wife. And she's not a virgin. That's clear. Um, what Isaiah is doing in the Greek is not actually predicting anything that need be looked at as miraculous. So, so think about antiquity with, with, you know, kind of 1950s morals. If I were to say, see that, see that young woman over there, uh, see that virgin over there, Um, she's, she's going to get pregnant and, and bear a child and you'll call his name Emmanuel. You would think, yes, um, that virgin will after finishing high school and finishing college and getting engaged and getting married and getting a good job and becoming financially stable at that point, she will have a baby. Um, and and there's nothing miraculous there, nothing more or nothing less than anybody else's pregnancy. Isaiah the Greek is just giving Isaiah a little bit more time. She's not pregnant yet, so we have to wait for her to get pregnant. A couple of hundred years later, the evangelist we call Matthew, reading his scripture in the Greek, sees a virgin will conceive. And he takes it literally, perfectly normal reading. uh, And he then explains that that, that's the conception of uh, of Jesus uh, for Mary. So Matthew read it perfectly okay. Um, the, The Greek can be read that way but there's no way the Hebrew can come up with a virgin conceiving. And it's Matthew's choice to take that as a miracle rather than just an extension of time.
2: And also what Matthew did, which by the way, is something that rabbis in rabbinic readings do all the time. And many scholars have pointed out how proto-rabbinical Matthew's reading is it takes that single verse or some phrases from that single verse and decontextualizes them. That is something that uh, biblical scholars like me who are interested in what the text originally meant, were always going to look at a set of words within the larger context, but both later Jewish and Christian readings often take a set of words or a verse or a set of verses out of that particular context. And that's
0: simply a different way of reading. Well, again, the, the, the point for the listener here is, again, we're not trying to, to tear down any particular reading in favor one over the other. We're simply trying to come together and look at how our different religious communities, looking at the, many times the same texts, are, are coming away with different readings. And so we can understand each other and uh, we can understand our, our own communities and our own sacred texts through this conversational comparative process here. Uh, And your book is filled with all kinds of discussions uh, and examples of this, and I I will include a link in the program notes and encourage folks to to pick up a copy. But uh, one final question, the conclusion of your book, uh, which you have have a chapter 13 on From Polemic to Possibility. I love that that title. Our religious communities, unfortunately, have uh, a complicated history that includes things like uh, anti-Semitism and uh, violence and these types of things. How can we use this conversation about different ways of approaching the sacred text as a way of doing something positive and moving, as you say, from polemic to possibility?
2: So much of this has to do with tone. So you know, we're out of an era in which polemic was incredibly important in the American scene. And we wrote this book during that particular era. And we saw how damaging that type of polemic is and what it means when different communities talk down to one another and are not willing to listen to one another. So what we're really trying to encourage these different communities to do is to explain each of them from from the inside. this is what we think this text means and why. At, but to do it in a way which also involves what I would call gener- generous listening to the other. And that's what we're trying to introduce in this particular book.
1: I think if, if we take seriously the idea of loving our neighbor and loving the stranger who dwells among us, we didn't even move to enemy at this point. Let's just talk about strangers. Um, one, one way you do that is you, you come to understand what your, your, your neighbor and, and the stranger down the street values very highly. Um, and in our hyper, um uh, hyper religiosity that we have in certain pockets of the United States, um, we don't do that. Um, which means you can't just go to the scripture as you pointed out before and say, and cherry pick and say, Oh, this is what people are doing, but to say, what do your scriptures say? And then take the next step and say, how do you understand them? Because if you want to love your neighbor, it helps to know if your neighbor has a particular religious tradition. And here we're just talking within Judaism and Christianity. Find out what the scriptures say, and then find out how your neighbor interprets them, um, and try to try to see, as 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 disorienting as it may be, try to look through somebody else's lenses to see the logic there. And if you're lucky, you see not only the logic but you see the beauty. You see the continuity. You see how the readings work toward issues of, of ethical prompts or toward um, um, emotional appeal. Recognize how your neighbors read, and you might learn something not only about them. You might learn something about yourself, and that's all to the good.
2: And that brings us back to the title of this podcast, Multi-Faith Matters, which of course I realize is a pun, but um, it is good. I'm not encouraging anybody to be multi-faith. I don't even quite know what that would mean, but understanding the faith of others and embedding your faith and religious commitments within those of others matters it helps you understand your own faith better, and as HHS says, it really leads you towards sympathy to all of the others, which is a very fundamental biblical value.
0: I appreciate that very much, and thanks for the almost little commercial promo, uh, Mark, for uh, multi faith matters. There, there is a double meeting there. We talk about the stuff of multi faith matters, but it also matters. It's important uh, having these kinds of conversations. So. I, uh, there's so much more we could talk about, but uh, we simply don't have time. We'll have to draw this conversation to a close. But uh, Amy, Jill Levine, and Mark Brettler, thank you so much for carving out the time and being able to coordinate uh, our three different schedules. And, and Mark from the other part of the world, there. So it's appreciated.
1: Pleasure to be with you.
2: You asked wonderful questions. Thank you.
0: Indeed. Again, this is uh, John Moorhead, the host for Multi Faith Matters. Uh, please. Visit our website at multifaithmatters.org for other episodes of the podcast and other resources. Thank you for listening and watching. Until next time.